Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. In this episode, you'll hear the remarkable journey of the internationally acclaimed artist Claire Morgan, who faced a challenging upbringing in Northern Ireland while living with undiagnosed Tourette's and autism. We discuss how both diagnoses in her 30s and 40s have profoundly shaped her life, confirming her unique strengths that enable her to create ambitious, impactful artwork and maintain a sustainable creative career. Claire shares insights on how the art world could better support neurodivergent artists and reflects on the advice she'd give her younger self. I hope you find Claire as inspiring as I do. Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Could you do us the honour of introducing yourself and um, tell the audience where you live and work? Yeah, uh, my name is Claire Morgan and I am a visual artist working in lots of different media now, actually. Um, And I am based in Gateshead, um, Newcastle Gateshead, so I'm just right on the River Tyne, um, in a big old house full of cats and dead stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the cats are alive though, right? The cats are alive, definitely. <laughs> so, and that's in the north of England? Yes, it is, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so you said this big old house, you actually have a studio, so you live and work in the same building, right? Yeah, so I... I was living in London previously. I studied up here and I moved to London for a few years. And um, about eight years ago, I moved back up um, so that I could have more space. But I find that I could have the most space and time to commit to my work if if it was all under one roof. So and you have a, a, a studio um, where we're, we're looking at you now. That's part of your, your office of your studio. For those people who watch on YouTube or on social media, you're in a space where you do a lot of your admin for your creative practice. Is that right? Yeah. So this is my studio. Through that door, I've got a big room, which is where I do drawing and kind of thinking about new ideas and taxidermy stuff and small sculpture. And then I've got a different room downstairs that's for larger scale work and and for whenever I've got people helping me and, and all that kind of stuff. So if somebody came to do a studio visit, what kind of things would they usually see? Um, let me see. So in the room behind me, um, I've always got lots of, kind of call them drawings in progress, but sort of big sheets, really, really big sheets of paper covering large areas of wall where I'm just kind of scribbling and writing notes. And I think my process of starting ideas is very often as much to do with like writing down notes as drawing things there's often like a combination of words and shapes and then they somehow kind of find a way together so there's that stuff and then I've just got a lot of random crap really (laughs) um um, animals and like fragments or organic material Lots of stuff hanging from the ceiling because a lot of my work involves suspense and I'm, I'm really interested in what things do whenever they're levitating. Um, I've seen to be levitating. Um, and then downstairs there's a room where if I have assistants that are working on larger scale projects, then they'd be working down there. Um, and so there's a, a setup where we can prepare like large-scale works made from threads and there's lots of kind of repetitive processes and things that need to to go on in that room um at the moment there's nothing there because it's just right in between projects so I'm just about to start a big project um in the next week or two uh, start production of it um and then I've got another room where I'm kind of working on large scale well say large scale life-sized figurative work um and another space that's kind of like science silly, they call it a viewing room, but like it's just a room in my house that I've got some stuff in that's finished. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like a, a clean space so that I can see what things look like whenever they're not 
in among all this clutter that I've got everywhere else handy. I really enjoy the way you've set up your studio um, for yourself, but also as a viewer. It's something that I always encourage artists to do. If it doesn't matter how tiny or large your space is, but that creative cycle, that process cycle, when you bring in a curator or a gallerist or somebody to really get close and understand the work, it's really helpful to see the kind of what you call the wet space or the messy space where you're making work or conceiving work. And then when you take it through the process of becoming or manifesting into a final object, and then having it in some kind of form, like a finished form, so that people could see how it might look in their home or in an exhibition space. So I think it's a really smart space that you've set up for yourself. And uh, it feels like a really incredible achievement to have established that for yourself in the north of England, where you actually have an international career from that base. Yeah, I don't really know how that's happened. Let's explore that a bit. Paint us a picture of where your journey began. Where did you grow up and who were your early influences? Um, So I I grew up in Belfast. I was born in 1980, so I grew up during the 80s and 90s there. So it was the tail end of the Troubles. Um, I grew up in a little tiny cottage kind of on the on the outskirts of Belfast, um, not from a wealthy background. My mum was a nurse and my dad was a teacher. Um, and yeah, it's like a little tiny cottage kind of on the edge of the countryside, but also right next to a big house in the state, which was Protestant and I'm supposed to be Catholic. So it was very isolated, I guess. Mm. Um, in terms of cultural influences, I actually knew very little about art or artists um aside from a few books in school about Van Gogh and Picasso and all those dead guys um and I didn't really know anything about contemporary art till I was on the foundation year to be honest and definitely nothing about the art world um but while I was at school I was well from as early as I can remember really I was always making things and drawing I wanted to be an artist so I didn't really Know what that was um but while I was at school I was really obsessed with um fashion and um so I guess like more than going to museums or or looking at art books which like, we got taught we got took to the museum to look at dinosaurs and mummies whenever we were kids but not um yeah true <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I think more so than that, I was kind of scouring like fashion magazines and was really obsessed with like the the haute couture photo shoots that you would have had in those magazines at that time. Um, you know, like stuff by Alexander McQueen, the the runway show that he did that was around Joan of Arc. Um, okay. and then like photographers like Nick Knight and those kind of like the iconic images that he made of Bjork and Devon Aoki and all the, it's like cutting clippings out of magazines and keeping all these things. Um, what was it you saw in them, Claire? Um, Theatre and beauty and ambition and weirdness and colours and patterns. Um, I guess people as well. Um I've always been really interested in humans. Um, and and how they work and I guess <laughs> I guess maybe that is never really thought about it before but I guess that probably is part of it and also you know I guess like the, the sort of background I was from like you know being an artist is not really like something you could do um and it was posh um and I I guess those I mean and I'm saying this now and then thinking that's kind of crap because it's not like a normal person can access who couture but I guess like cultural material that's in a magazine format is is more accessible to yes. a kid in that kind of a context um yeah and in terms of your home life and the 
the people that were in your family and your family friends, were there any characters or people that um, encouraged you to be different? No, really not, actually. Um, I was just like a little weirdo on my own. <laughs> so did you um, have to challenge a way of thinking in the family, whether, you know, other people or your own way of thinking to pursue your life as an artist? Well, I wasn't really told that I couldn't be an artist as such, like in terms of, oh, you know, you must be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever <laughs> other people get told. Um, but I probably was nudged towards the fact that it wasn't really a real job that I could actually do and yeah like I said you know I guess in a way that was true like my parents generations um and social background wouldn't really permit that um I was kind of nudged in the direction of I could be an art teacher um yeah I guess it's a lot less risky to embark on a a career of tying some stuff to bits of string um if you're from a financially privileged background <laughs> but I remember I remember um visiting family friends once with my dad and my sister I must have been about 15 at, a at the time and the there were a couple with children about the same age as my sister and I and the the man um or they, they were asking what what I was going to do and I said I wanted to be an artist and you know when I then kind of snorted a little bit and thought well okay what you're really going to do um and I just remember the 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 wife saying oh well you know an, an art teacher is a perfectly reasonable second wage for someone to to have uh, even whenever I was that age and I didn't even really know what that meant or how kind of gross it was but like I did instinctively like not only am I going to fail but also it's going to be okay because I'll have a man to look after me yeah. <laughs> like not that being an art teacher is a failure like art teachers are amazing but what I mean is whenever that's not what I want to do yes um the idea that I would have to yeah not yeah you know what I mean <laughs> I do I was thinking um, about what you said about risk and thinking about the context of a country and you growing up at this sort of at the end of the time of the troubles mm -hmm. and how the culture of risk and fear must have permeated for so many. So thinking from that perspective, the idea of doing something that wasn't consistently bringing in an income or was going to provide security on some level, you can understand why maybe family or Friends mm -hmm. and family might think that actually, well, we want her to be safe. So the idea yeah. of connecting money or, I don't know, being looked after by somebody, you can sort of understand it. But nevertheless, um, yeah, that idea that somebody couldn't possibly pursue their dreams and succeed. Um, yeah, it's quite kind of limiting to be told that. Yeah. Off, off the off the bat. Um but I think as as far as like the troubles and stuff, like whenever I was that age, I just wanted to get out of Northern Ireland as quickly as possible. Um, and I like as soon as I finished my foundation year, I moved to England and I ended up in Newcastle because it was affordable. Um, and the person who I was in a relationship with at the time um got into a college there, and so did I. So that was how we chose. <laughs> I just kind of wanted to escape anyway to be honest with you um how do you think you overcame those um doubts or challenges I don't to be honest like I think whenever I was that age I had such tunnel vision and just didn't really listen to or acknowledge anything that anyone else said about anything or their opinions or advice um I, I just kind of like did it um so that tunnel vision has served you throughout your life mm -hmm. if you could say a little bit about where that comes from I know where it comes from now um so I was recently diagnosed as autistic um and although that's been something that's kind of obviously been there for my whole life I had absolutely no idea um 
So whenever I was a kid, um, maybe from, well, I can't really remember before I was about 10 or 11, but from that point onwards anyway, I had multiple vocal um, and motor tics. Um, now I'm talking about that they're going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I still do, though. I can usually control them to some extent for short periods of time if I, if I need to, if it's like uncomfortable socially or if it's causing me pain but it's kind of like holding your breath but um at that time and for years and years I was punished verbally and physically um every day for for those things and generally kind of given a very clear message that that I as a person was unbearably embarrassing and disappointing and that I should pretend to be someone else so and I kind of did that for many years um and for a very long time I was so ashamed of it that I I couldn't even bring myself to go to a doctor to find out what these ticks were. Um, and when I finally did, which was in my late 30s, I discovered that I have Tourette's. Um, and then that kind of brought my awareness to lots of other related things around uh, neurodivergence. Um, and yeah, then I uh, eventually discovered that I'm autistic, which obviously has got something to do with my my tunnel vision and um ability to to focus in in a very obsessive way on my work which is something that I treasure I think it's definitely a superpower because of what you've achieved in your life which is really truly extraordinary how else do you think the Tourette's and autism has shaped your your work and your interactions with the art world the main thing is that the art world isn't isn't always a very welcoming environment for for someone who's introvert or for someone who takes more time to process things um and yeah I'm sure there's been plenty of times in the past particularly at the start of my career where I probably came across as blunt or rude or or missing the point or not knowing what to say in a situation um and I think probably most people's attitudes are a bit different now from what they were then so maybe there maybe there would have been yeah I don't know different kind of support then like I, I kind of like I want to say that I wish that I'd known younger that I was autistic but perhaps yeah I guess like it would have been nice had I known and also had I grown up in a world where difference wasn't rewarded with hostility because actually the reality is like if I had have known that in the 80s like what why would I have been treated and what kind of barriers would have been put in front of me like um, like obviously it poses barriers and it opens up different avenues but but at that time I think like it would have just been switching one thing for another I don't know if that makes sense um yes I think almost not knowing meant that you didn't see any limitations to what you should try or do but at the same time there were no support systems there for you to almost maximize those superpowers that you had yeah like if I had been like there weren't any visible barriers but obviously there's been things where had I known that I think about things or process things in a different way or that I that I don't always immediately know how I feel about something or yeah it just would have helped me navigate my life in a in a more sensible (laughs) maybe not sensible but (laughs) a way that was more helpful for me um but yeah like I say like on the flip side my my commitment to my work is quite big (laughs) and I can can do sacrifice a lot of things in order to to realize a vision and that yeah it's something that's definitely helped me you took that sort of hyper focus, Claire, which I know a lot of artists um, experience. It's it's how you get something done, how you see something through to the end. What impact do you think that that can have um, on the flip side of that sometimes where you go all in on something? Whenever I get into a project um, or a body of work, like I do kind of switch off completely everything else. And I know that that's something that not everybody can actually do um and I kind of like forget that I'm supposed to maintain relationships or wash clothes <laughs> or, or yeah. eat um which obviously is problematic if it's like <laughs> a lot like if there's no breaks in that but um but yeah there, there's kind of 
pros and cons to it. And, you know, I imagine that there's stacks of artists, particularly older generations and female artists who are also neurodivergent and are either undiagnosed or else they know perfectly well and just don't say anything because, you know, we're sitting here and I've known you for years and I trust you. Um, but obviously this will be in the world and the world is still a really hostile place and people still lose jobs and opportunities or aren't offered them in the first place just for, for saying that, that they're autistic, for example. And, you know, someone in a position of power just thinks of a stereotype of the, you know, the... The idea of deficit, I guess. Um, so it's a huge risk to kind of come out publicly about something like that, particularly whenever, yeah, attitudes and attitudes are very slow to change, aren't they? So I've kind of gone off topic. They are, no, but <laughs> I think I, I do. I really appreciate you talking about it here, Claire, because I think I I work, as you know, with hundreds of neurodivergent clients, artists and arts leaders, actually, and. I think the there's a few things in terms of the art world that I think I'm aware of. And, you know, over the years, I mean, I've been in the art world for over 30 years, so I've experienced all of those changing contexts and I've been susceptible and probably contributed to some of those unhealthy contexts myself without realising over the years. I think the the speed of which we expect artists to make their best work the context, as in the administrative bureaucratic context of an institution, the amount of meetings, the amount of emails, the amount of um, demands for very little money that we put on artists. Um, there are lots of almost silent codes or silent um, signals that we give that from the very outset put an artist in a position where they feel like actually they don't they're not sure if their psychological safety is met mm -hmm. so that they can be completely themselves so i'm thinking about that first moment from the you know the initial conversation with the person who's usually the curator or the producer or the commissioner um and understanding and establishing and being open because as you're open here i know a lot of the clients that i've worked with um, haven't felt, like you said, either haven't come out as being autistic or neurodivergent or maybe haven't got the diagnosis, but they're pretty sure they they know. But they've even been told, as some people I know, that it's too late for them to bother getting a diagnosis because they're in their 50s and they've been managing it all their life. So it's not worthwhile. But I think that understanding what you need so whether it's like some kind of rider or you know understanding what conditions you need in order to do your best work to be your best self I think is important for all of us to be open that it's a it's a two-way street right that if an artist or the commissioner wants the best work they have to create the conditions together that are, that work for both of them in order to make the best work happen so the one of the only ways we can start to make that shift is by being open and honest so i really appreciate you sharing your experience and insights because you have achieved such an extraordinary amount in your life it's remarkable and your determination and um, commitment to your vision is one thing, but also you have committed to figuring things out, finding a way to figure things out. One of the things that I, I've experienced a lot, if I was just talking to an artist yesterday, is one of the things they find challenging is interpreting emails or interpreting information that comes through and uh, not really understand, thinking there are some hidden hidden agendas or you know hidden things mm -hmm. and it taking some time to process and I wonder is that something that you could relate to yeah uh I think maybe sometimes I just don't even realize that there are hidden <laughs> there are <laughs> hidden agendas and the fact is that there always are um but I guess that that idea of transparency is important you know like if you work and you know it doesn't just apply to artists here or autistic or neurodivergent like think it's important like not not to kind of sideline people but also not to make some kind of special case out of them right because everybody would benefit and everybody would get better work out of everyone else if 
conditions were better. So like, you know, be transparent about what you actually need um, from artists and also about what you have to offer them. Don't change the goalposts if you're going to, like allow some time for adjustment. Um, I think that's just good practice, but you know, I'm sure most artists have had experiences where a client or commissioner has said one thing and then done a different thing. And it's just sort of a waste of everyone's time. Um yeah. irrespective of of how your brain works. Um and the thing you said about leading time as well is is very true. Like I've had to turn down so many opportunities over the years because the deadline for for, for, for proposals was really really short um and again that's that's just like anyone who's really busy or wants to actually do a good job is gonna be in that situation um or is gonna have to respond to that situation in that way if they um if they don't want to compromise what they're doing um yeah that gestation period i think is really important where you're responding to somebody else's context and you know there's what they want and then there's what you want as an artist and I think Mm -hmm. something that's really um, clear in what you do which I really love is the fact that you have a very specific kind of language if you like that's in your work you have a very particular world point of view and whatever the context and whatever situation you are aligned always like it's always recognizably your work it's always recognizably your point of view and you're looking for ways to take an audience on a journey that is slight challenging thought-provoking and isn't kind of dumbing down to the context that you're in so those kind of risks and those challenges are really important to you, it seems, when you're responding to a new context. You're looking for the thing that's exciting for you, whilst also being mindful of what the commissioner wants, which I think is a remarkable skill. Do you know, I know a lot of artists that actually really bend themselves into all kinds of, you know, twists and knots and turns, trying to fit themselves into somebody else's shaped thing. And I know that that can be really challenging. How have you helped yourself to kind of stay true to your own vision in all of these variety of contexts that you've been in? Oh, um, I think probably my process of of working through ideas does involve a bit of going through that, trying to squish myself into to different forms and then ending up arriving at something that, yeah I guess like sits in that kind of world of well, how my work feels or how my work looks um or what it does but um I often find it very difficult to go straight to that point I have to do all the other stuff first so that's one of the reasons that that I I kind of want like a reasonable amount of lead in time because if I don't have it you're going to end up with one of these shit things that comes before the good thing <laughs> <laughs> I don't want them to go out into the world <laughs> But you have to go through them in order to actually get to the good thing, I think. Um, Yeah, I took Or the thing that you feel happy with, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I think every artist I've ever worked with has to make a lot of shit things to get to the great thing and Mm -hmm. be prepared to let it be shit for a bit. Um, I wonder, could you talk about your process a bit more, Claire, and how you work through the research materials and kind of how you start to form the idea and at, right the way through to editing and titling, it'd be really helpful to understand a bit more. Ooh. So I would start with making sketches. They're not like nice sketches. They're just kind of scribbles and words and stuff on, on big bits of paper. And then I start to see connections between those things. Or sometimes I just have a really particular image, like the last body of work I did, there was an image of a woman holding the skin of a fox against herself. Um... And that image was just in my head for years before I actually pursued it. Um, but it ended up through the process of, of, of trying to figure out what it actually was. I I tried making prints, uh, Pride Point, which was not something that I had done before. And I just did it as a little kind of creative exercise. Um, and it ended up turning into this massive book. Um, and I tried writing about this kind of scenario um and that ended up 
turning into your thing, even though I wasn't expecting it to be something that would ever present publicly. Um, so like, yeah, I guess the things that I don't do consciously, or maybe I will do from now on, but the things that generally seem to to lead to the best results is whenever I'm able to find a place where I'm just playing, which I find quite difficult to find. Um, so if I like put myself onto a little course or something or or do something that's not supposed to be part of my practice, like trick myself into thinking that it doesn't really matter, then the end result is actually something that's interesting. Um, and then once I get past that point, I guess starting to make things. Um, most recently I've been just playing with loads of different materials and, and things. Um, I think over the years my work kind of yeah the way that it develops is is kind of uh organic I guess like quite often I find that the direction of the work is is led by um the the properties of the material or process of construction or something something that's a that's a means to an end ends up opening up something that's actually interesting and that kind of becomes part of the work and then the work moves in that direction I don't know if that makes sense but yeah the, could you give us an example um you've been working with wax haven't you for example yeah um <laughs> I don't know if I can give you an example based around that though yeah I guess that the reason that I was working with wax is because I was starting to work with human form for the first time um and even though I've been making sculptural things for many years, making like a physical sculpture out of sculpture materials isn't something that I've done for a really long time. Um, and the materials that work is made out of is is really important to me. Um, and the only kind of sculpture-ish, sculpture thing, or the only kind of traditional ish sculpture process that I've been doing over the past few years have been taxidermy because you make a, a little figurative sculpture of a of a animal to put inside the skin. Um and so whenever I was turning my attention to the human form, I started playing around with materials that, that are used for taxidermy or have historically used for taxidermy. So wax used to be used. Um modeling things in clay and then casting them um but it also has this real like translucency and vulnerability that in, that that's like skin um and I was able to play with that and, and yeah I guess find a way of conveying the the fragility and the vulnerability of, of a body um you used some pigments inside the wax to cut to color it in parts didn't you yeah I wanted to try and I guess make it look a little bit damaged. I didn't want to create beautiful figures of women because that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of been done. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, like I don't feel that like that really represents me or my experience of my life or my body or most of the other women that I know. Um, there's you know there's kind of pain and and difficulty and these things contained in in your body and I wanted to to find ways to sort of yeah embody that in some way so we um, start we start with the sketch very often mm -hmm. like you started sketching with the sort of the women and the um the the fox appears a lot in your work doesn't it so that um and we so she's holding the fox and that drawing starts to become um, turn into some into the uh, writing, the prints, and then it became a book, um, mm -hmm. which you ended up displaying in full. It was like concertina style, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, maybe A4, was it around A4 size? It was a little bit taller than A4, but mm. it was multiple pages. So whenever it was sat open in a kind of concertina shape it was about six meters long mm. it was quite a big one <laughs> and um, I saw I saw pictures of of it in the gallery and you it looked almost like a spine so it was almost like the in the gallery it looked like the a central totem almost but laid out 
Um, and so the text and the um, drawings in the book um, were animated almost as you kind of walked around and moved through the book um, in mm. the space. So that whole way of working was new to you, wasn't it? It was part of the process of sort of expanding how you were responding to the ideas in the text and the drawings and the prints. So how it became a book was a new process. But then mm -hmm. that text and the drawings informed the titles of the large drawings and the sculptures that were in mm -hmm. this uh, recent exhibition. And the life-size sculptures were, as you said, something you've never made before. So mm -hmm. um, the kind of the all of that new body of work that you published just at the end of 2023 was all new work that you hadn't made anything quite like it before. And that involved some kind of risk, right, to, to publish it into the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I felt like I was going to be sick before the opening. <laughs> I think that every artist I know could relate to that, that kind of moment mm. of introducing a whole new body of work because it was so different for you. Um, but new territories is important for an artist, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, I the point I was getting to earlier when I was talking about how the, the, the processes lead the work was that it... I kind of accidentally find that I'd sort of backed myself into a corner in terms of what I was making. So not that I was making something that I didn't want to make, but I found that the materials that I was choosing became more and more specific. And actually there's, and it's because materials are so important to the, the meaning of the work. But I guess in the recent body of work, it was a kind of process of discovering that those weren't the only processes and materials that, that could have significance for for what I'm doing um and yeah with that body of work I guess the most important thing was like direct contact with everything that was in the show and the, the process of making and like using organic materials like the, the, even the paper that the book's made out of or the um the very large drawings were drawn on uh board where the grain of the wood was still showing through it so they were yeah I guess like the evidence of the, the organic or, or growth or time passing or processes was always visible in all of the works um and the processes of making them themselves actually you know all the, the big drawings that I made in that exhibition were were all images of a, a live woman and a dead fox interacting in some way and you know they're their life drawings or representational drawings but it was the the process of making them that was the most important thing um and the discomfort of of, of asking someone to to sit with a skin in a really uncomfortable position and the kind of yeah the the awkwardness and the trust and all the, the different kind of aspects of that experience rather than necessarily drawing a picture <laughs> working or working from photographs yeah 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 working from photographs wouldn't have worked because it was very much about that live process and engaging with a, another human um there's something in when you're in the studio in that context where because you chose a model very specifically to draw from didn't you yeah so. i mean for that body of work i wanted someone that was a bit like me um yeah. <laughs> not completely like me <laughs> she would be really offended if she wanted to listen <laughs> to this <laughs> um they're not necessarily supposed to be autobiographical things but there's that element to them I think in anybody's work there's always an autobiographical element to it whether it's explicit or or more kind of hidden um but yeah it made sense to me that if I'm I don't know I get I guess the process of my work is like always getting a bit closer to to the core of what what I I guess like what I am really um must be the same with everybody's work um and part of that is like you become braver over time and you can go a bit closer to that but also whenever you're younger you don't really know what that is as well like I don't even really know 
who I actually was whenever I was in my 20s or you know what I mean mm. like it kind of it's not like you're making work that isn't honest but as as time goes on it kind of gets closer and closer to something challenging for me <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah I think something I was picking up as you were talking then was the feeling of being with another woman in the studio who is being vulnerable with you who is a standing or ref- so representative not just of you but of other women mm. and the relationship with the the fox and the kind of the sort of somatic experience that takes place when you're physically in the same space with somebody which is very different the kind of the sort of the the very subtle clues that somebody else gives you in their body the way they move the stance there's something that you can pick up as an artist in the way that you then intuit a response in the way you draw a line or the way that you move through the the paper or the boards that you're working on. So there's something in that dance with somebody in the studio that was really important in capturing the atmosphere and the mood and the, I, I guess, the frisson between the the human and the non-human in that work. And I think for me, that sort of knowing that they were made from life and the kind of the charge that's in the drawings then becomes a little clearer. You know, that it's um, all of those life-size drawings that you made or, you know, they're really impactful um, in the kind of rawness and the simplicity that seems to be, you know, you've edited everything else out apart mm-hmm. from the woman and the fox and the staging of them um, is so, you know, there are lots of references to historical drawings and paintings and, but I think that kind of that bringing it back down to basics, like you're saying, and getting in touch with who it is you are and what you want to say. I think what I love about what you do is that embodying the kind of the the positive and negative, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, that's in life. And that kind of um, in the writing and all of the work that you're making at the moment, that autobiographical honesty feels like this point in your life like everything you've learned about yourself who you are how you made what you're what's informed the person that you've become the kind of woman that you've become and the decision to be more explicitly political with a small p if you like because I think Mm. the work has got that frisson has got that kind of um difficult it's not trying to please people it's not trying to you know be a pretty picture or a pretty object it's actually trying to explain or not explain so it's trying to express the human experience in all of its rawest forms Mm -hmm. so it makes sense to me that the process that you go through is from digging deep from yourself like writing and drawing and getting mucky and getting your hands in and getting stuck into the materiality and mm-hmm. trying to bend it to your will. And then also trying to um, trying to face some of those difficulties that we all experience or some of us try and hide away from Claire, but you, you really are up for having a look at them, you know, getting them yeah. out and having a look at those challenges. Well, I've kind of done years of like pretending to be a different person, not consciously, but like you can do that without being conscious of it. Um, and it still creates some kind of block. I mean, I guess a lot of like my earlier adult life is just like finding ways to create walls around myself, <laughs> um, hide from people, uh, like self-medicating, whatever. Um, and yeah, whether you're doing that consciously or not, it, it does create distance between you and kind of, I guess, like the truth of, of your life or your experience. Um, and I just kind of think, I don't know, I haven't got time for that shit anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If people I'm... are going to be dicks because I'm being honest about something, then fuck them. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but obviously that is a very real risk as well. Um, but I, I guess like in my previous work before this body of work, there was, I mean, that, pre that presence of, of decay or death or the passing of time or change was always there. There was always kind of like an escape route, like not consciously, but, and, and not in a way that like, I wasn't trying to soften the work in some way. It's just that the focus of the work has kind of come round so that that aspect of the work doesn't really have a place in it at the moment. Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but like, you know, if our if our work is multicolored and and wonderful looking in a superficial way, some people can just choose to look at it at that level and and not really go any further into it. Um, but you can go further into it. But I think with the recent work that I made, there there wasn't really that that place for them or me to hide. It was just kind of it was yes. very di direct and and honest and. Uh, instinctive I guess um I, I think I understand that the the older work where you were doing these really large scale sort of installations um that were sens sensorial sensational um seductive they had a real um they did have a visceral people had visceral responses in front of them but they were kind of awe-inspiring in lots of ways mm -hmm. And I guess there's something about that kind of the gritty abject quality that you've revisited as a way of kind of getting up close and personal that I think um, is is gorgeous in, in that you're no longer waiting. You're not asking for permission. You're not uh, you're not rounding off the edges of things. Mm -hmm. You know, you're actually saying it in that moment in the best way you possibly can. I think, what was the surprise for you in terms of the response that you got to that new body of work, given that you were, as you said to yourself, shitting yourself on the night of the opening? Yeah. <laughs> what was the pleasant surprise? There were really strong reactions to it um, that, that a lot of people did see it as a, as a very clear progression from the previous work that I had made which which was the thing that I was really worried about because obviously you know no matter what like if you've got uh you know what's the word I'm looking for a line of um, inquiry or no no just more like the kind of the the work that I've made over the years and style and, and the kind of yeah I guess maybe I don't like that word actually no for it, I but don't yeah. either but yeah. um but obviously this was a body of work where I used lots of different materials I hadn't used before I used them in different ways um and I used different imagery as well humans um so there was a risk even just in the fact that people might think well that doesn't look like your work um but actually lots of people said that it made perfect sense to them like that um which which was really nice um and also like I I was so scared about what the reaction to it was going to be. And then actually there were one or two people who responded to it um, in a strong way that wasn't entirely positive. And I kind of thought that that would be really, really difficult. And actually I just thought, well, it's not for you then. Like you're going to make something that pleases everyone. It's probably going to be really boring. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear you say that. And whenever think... with those two people, actually, I had conversations with them, and whenever I dug deeper into why they felt that way about it, um, it was because the work was doing what I wanted it to do, actually, and they just weren't comfortable. That's so too bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you know? Actually, sometimes I think about. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I think as artists, we forget sometimes. There are certain TV programs. Um, if I've been grieving, for example. Just even because there's such a, well, because we know there's such an amazing amount of um, cop dramas or, um, I don't know, psychological thrillers that involve women being killed, maimed, raped. You know, it's just on mainstream TV. Those images mm -hmm. are given to us all the time. 
And so when I've been in a period of grieving over somebody or have gone through something really challenging or difficult, it doesn't matter how good that TV program is or film, I actually can't watch it because it's triggering. So, yeah, yeah. And that's not the, the maker's fault. It's because it's oh, no. come at a very particular point in my life where it's just too much, you know. So I understand that completely. And I think mm. that bravery to say this is the work that I want to make now this is my truth this is what I want to say to the world put it into the world and to learn that you can be resilient because when you understand how people respond and why they respond and you're willing to have those conversations with people and not take it as a personal wounding but actually that's just somebody else's you know point in their life but also some people are a hundred percent committed to living in la la land and surrounding themselves like eating a thousand bags of haribo and going shopping every day to anesthetize <laughs> themselves and the last thing they want is to be challenged on that so of course it makes perfect sense that you're going to meet lots of different kinds of people at different points in your career but i love the fact that you allowed yourself to learn from those people you know, not hide away at the opening or resist having those conversations because I think as you learned, no, I was I was really really well. glad that I did actually. Um, yeah, and it, it felt. I mean, not those conversations specifically, but generally the experience of of doing something that felt very different or like a a move away from what I'd done before felt really exhilarating. I guess. Um, and you sold some work, right? Yep. <laughs> Which is brilliant. Yeah. And I know because it was uh, that the show that we've been talking about, because perhaps you could say the title and uh, where people could discover it if they wanted to see the work. Um, so the title of the show was I Only Dared to Touch You Once I Knew That You Were Dead. Um, and it it was at Gallery Kirsten Greb in Cologne and then it, a different iteration of it with slightly different works moved to their Paris gallery immediately afterwards and it just closed on the on the 6th of January um but there's a a walkthrough video of it actually um which is on my Instagram uh and also on um Kirsten Grab's YouTube uh channel um I guess their website as well and then there's a, a an interview that I did um a in conversation event that I did with uh, Andrea Yan, who's the director of um Modern Gallery in uh Saarbrücken, um about the work and about yeah stuff. <laughs> um yeah. And if people wanted to see more of your work on your website, Claire, where <laughs> would they go to? Uh, my website is claire-morgan.co.uk. Um and yeah, on my it's pretty up to date and there's a newsletter there that you can sign up to as well for exhibitions that are coming up and um, on social media it's at Claire Morgan Studio. So Carsten Greve is the gallery that represents you and you've been mm -hmm. working with them for a long time. Yeah since about 2009-2010. Mm. And what difference has that made to you as an artist? Well before I started working with them I, I worked with for shorter periods of time with some smaller galleries based in London. Um, but I think my kind of primary source of income uh, before I started working with them was kind of temporary public art commissions. Um, I, after I graduated, I just started applying for absolutely anything, anywhere that could even possibly have been crowbarred into <laughs> into working um and got rejected for most of them um but I ended up over the years getting quite a few of them as well and being able to make some really ambitious temporary things that were really exciting um but yeah I guess since I started working with them the change was that I started primarily making work that then goes in the gallery that then is sold um which is a very different way of working. Um, you know, there's not, there's not, there's different limitations to to whenever you're making like a temporary public art thing. You know, um, what kind of factors do you have to take into consideration, Claire, when you're making work for a commercial gallery? I mean, if I wanted to make an installation where the whole of their gallery was just filled with rotten strawberries, they probably would say no. Um, 
but then that's something that I could do in a temporary exhibition context in a museum or, or somewhere else instead. Um, mm -hmm. I guess I started making some more smaller works as well. Like I, it, it kind of led me to do a bit more. I was already getting more into drawing, but I guess it kind of, it allowed me to, to pursue the drawing side of my practice a bit more as well, because before that I didn't really know how to, you know, if you're making temporary public art, there's, I, uh, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, there's probably, yeah, loads of things I missed opportunities actually <laughs> thinking about that because there's definitely ways of, of doing that in public context. But at that time, I didn't really understand how to do that. So it was a quite nice way to to broaden my practice, I guess. Um, and then obviously working with a, a very established gallery, they've got, you know, existing relationships with museums and and collections and things like that that are incredibly valuable and they're not necessarily things that you can easily develop yourself as an artist um you've gone to art fairs as well too so you had your work mm -hmm. taken to various art fairs yeah yeah so that kind of expands the the audience i guess or awareness of your work generally um i think what there's in different continents yeah, I think what audiences might be um, encouraged to hear is that you can make challenging work that is not necessarily, let's say, use the word pretty, for example, mm -hmm. you know, is not because lots of people have a story in their minds that if you have a commercial gallery, you have to change the kind of work that you make on a conceptual level as well as the kind of scale or medium and that if they make work that is difficult or tricky or in some way that they might not get represented. And I think you've obviously evidenced that that's not the case, but you're talking about it, which is great to hear as the different contexts for publishing your work. So you're mm -hmm. seeing the commercial gallery and these different spaces like public museums and public co outdoor commissions as different contexts where you stay true to your values and your vision and your mission in the work, but you find ways that are most suited to that particular context. So it remains interesting for you, but it also has agency in that context. Yeah, I think I find like, I think I find it really valuable to have that experience of, yeah, finding ways of working on, on very different scales or with very different materials. But, but that doesn't mean that I've got like, two different practices that are completely separate for each other the things are kind of intertwined but you know if I presented like a really small drawing in an atrium space of a, of a museum or whatever it probably wouldn't really work <laughs> but yeah. um, and likewise if there was a big massive installation sometimes the the gallery is not the right place to put that because yeah it sometimes things work better in spaces that aren't white cubes and sometimes things work better in spaces that that are um but they yeah they're just kind of different different facets of of a kind of continuous stream I guess mm. and thinking about the ways of adapting so that you can navigate relationship with a commercial gallery what would you say you've learned that would be useful for our listeners in terms of um, helping yourself to have a, a a working relationship with a commercial gallery. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, you mean like for kind of cultivating an existing relationship or for finding one? Because the kind of the process of finding it was quite accidental, actually. Um, it wasn't really to do with me. I was approached by by the gallery because um, Judith Grave had seen my my work somewhere and. And so they they loaned a piece of work for an exhibition and then she got on consignment and then it kind of the the relationship grew from there. Um what space did um do you see the work in? I think she might have seen it online actually. Mm, interesting. So that was that was a really, really important thing for me actually at at the beginning of my career was to be able to have my work online and to have that as a like a I'm trying to think whether I would have even been on, I would have been on social media at that time. When would that have been? Like in the late 2000s. So yeah. Um, 
but it was very different from what it is now yeah um but it was still really really valuable um to be able to to have that platform for things um I was just thinking because you said it wasn't anything to do with me it was accidental I was thinking that actually yeah, to be fair it probably wasn't accidental because I was just like hammering like trying to put my work everywhere that I could possibly exactly. like a really really long time so yeah <laughs> exactly probably I think not. that <laughs> persistence and commitment to just putting the work into different uh, lots of different contexts and just just pursuing it relentlessly I think is exactly right that yeah that's true actually because yeah that is something that I was doing but I was conscious that I was doing was just that process of putting your work out there getting in touch with people um and if those lines of inquiry don't come into anything that's fine because it's already out there and then eventually it'll it'll come back to you in from from maybe from somewhere where you're not expecting it to yeah but it but it wouldn't have if you hadn't put it out there in the first place yeah 100 percent. that's something I teach all the time it's just that actually let go of the outcome or the Mm -hmm. idea let go of like obsessing about whether it's coming to the thing lots of artists I know apply for one thing and they're so invested in that one thing that they think they can't possibly make the work happen unless they have the funding pot or the opportunity yeah. well like if you're at the start of your career and you apply for something where the the people shortlisting are, are, are like you know curated from a big museum or from a gallery or whatever even if you don't get selected for it your name and your work is still being in front of them and it's so often that it's just completely subjective who actually gets chosen in the end for a thing because there might be 10 people that are amazing and there's only one opportunity so if you don't happen to be on that side of the coin that was tossed for whoever gets selected, it doesn't it doesn't mean that it's a waste of time, I don't think. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's really important to not be disheartened by that stuff. I think that's a hundred percent right. It's um separating yourself out from a, the judgment of others. I think that's something that I think we could probably all take away from you, Claire, is that determination and commitment to the work but also um knowing that getting closest to your own truth is fundamental to actually making great work but also it resonating with people and that that in a way is more important than trying to squash yourself into a somebody else's shaped hole if you like Mm -hmm. yeah i wonder reflecting on your journey what lessons have you learned that you wish that you could share with your younger self (laughs) um fuck shame (laughs) there's there's nothing wrong with me um like I had such intense messaging as a kid and like as a girl as a neurodivergent girl that that I was wrong or broken which in hindsight I think is bullshit but you know it's like taking me till my 40s to actually realize that on a on a deep ish level (laughs) um and you know like for a long time I was so intensely preoccupied by what other people thought of me and there's like a persistent kind of sense of failure that accompanies that um so and you know sometimes it takes me quite a long time to kind of figure out how I actually feel about things as well so it would have been nice to have had a heads up on calling out that bullshit (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and I think also it took me a really long time to realize like in terms of my practice that when you're trying to think of ideas don't like sit staring at a blank page in your studio um go outside or read a book or do something else or something you haven't tried before because I think like the ideas that you foresight in that context where you're like I desperately have to think of something I'm going to do it on this page now um the things that come out of that are kind of a bit shit in comparison to the things that just sort of bubble up naturally from you know like when you're not expecting it or from mistakes or whatever yeah so get yourself outside make a ton of things take action rather than staring and trying to think I say this I haven't been outside in a week (laughs) (laughs) 
time to get into some greenery it's the weekend so yeah it's time to get into some green so um lastly um what have you got coming up Claire um so uh, I've got lots of different things in the pipeline but the two that I know that I can mention is I'm working on a a large-scale commission for the State Gallery of Lower Austria, which will open towards the end of May this year. Um, that'd be my first sort of exhibition in Austria, so it's really exciting to, and it's going to be a really big, exciting thing to make. Um, and then the the one after that is in autumn this year. I'll be um. I'll have a solo exhibition at the Golden Thread Gallery in Belfast, which is um, they're just in the process of moving location now. So they're going to be on Queen Street in Belfast. In the, the it's in the building where Craft World used to be in Belfast, which is which was like the only shop that you could go to to kind of get art and craft materials when I was a little kid. So it's quite funny that I'll have a solo exhibition in there. And I haven't done anything in in uh, in the island of Ireland for a really long time so it'll be really lovely to do something at home again that's brilliant yeah thank great well everybody can check out your work i encourage them to do so but thank you so much for joining us today claire and being so open and candid really appreciate you sharing your insights and wisdom with us thank you so much thank you very much and yeah generally for all the stuff that you do i know lots of artists who really uh, get a lot out of it thanks claire that means loads thank you thank you claire's choice to liberate herself from shame has empowered her to produce some of her most impactful and challenging work to date confronting the hurdles posed by both tourette's and autism she remains steadfast in carving out her unique path by harnessing her inherent strengths and embracing her individual superpowers, Claire has emerged as an internationally recognised exhibiting and selling artist, an inspiring force to be reckoned with. Her unwavering determination to establish an international creative career from the north of England is evident in the strategic setup of her studio and the organisation of her home life. This thoughtful approach allows her to leverage her strengths and results in the creation of ambitious work. I hope this has given you some inspiration too. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. (laughs) 